everyone. Welcome back to It All Starts Here. This is a podcast focusing on the communication and education of topics in reproductive science and women's health. I'm your host, Olivia Moyer, and we are here today at the Institute for Women's Health at UCL here in London. And today I am extremely excited because we are going to be taking a bit of an adventure down the genetics lane, um, my personal favorite lane, to talk about gene therapy. So to do this, I have with me the wonderful Professor Simon Waddington, who is a professor and researcher in the field of gene therapy here at UCL. He currently leads a team developing translational gene therapy for childhood inherited genetic diseases, including neurodegenerative diseases, inherited epilepsy, and metabolic diseases. And on top of this, he chairs the Cell and Gene Therapy Therapeutic Innovation Network of the UCL Translational Research Office. (laughs) Quite the mouthful. Um, He has been working in this field for over 20 years and alongside his team has published more than 160 peer-reviewed publications in journals including Nature, Cell, Science Translational Medicine, and many others. So I am beyond excited to have you here and to be speaking with you today about gene therapy. Um, So I think let's just, to start it off, maybe we can talk a little bit, or you can talk a little bit about where this kind of started for you, um, your journey. So so actually, I I grew up in a a household which was um, quite uh, engineering and science focused. So, I mean, although my mum was not uh, employed as a scientist, she certainly believed in conventional scientific and and, uh, medicinal approaches to things. Uh, My dad was uh, uh, an engineer, mechanical engineer and my brother uh, is or was an electronics engineer um, so we had quite a lot of, of science books around the place so I would read these books and I I knew that I just I just loved science um, when I was you know eight nine years old I didn't really know which science I would want to do for my for my career mm-hmm. um, you know I thought of maybe kind of you know being a um, rocket scientist or maybe being a, a doctor um, but it was actually it was biology that really really intrigued me I think more than anything else you know I've got I've got an image of a, a book that I was reading where it was describing Alexander Fleming and the penicillin and this sort of stuff so I think this really caught my imagination um, which is why so so when I was doing my uh, A-levels uh, I decided to do biology chemistry and maths and my dad said why are you not why are you not doing physics because you're good at physics and i said because I, I love biology and he said well there's there's no career in biology and i said yeah but i i want to do what i what i love doing so that's where it all started off that's amazing yeah i think i feel like it all kind of not all the time i mean for me i, did, I definitely didn't start with a passion for science right. but i think you know it's really cool when it kind of comes out of that at some point i think it always does come out of a, a passion and an interest and yeah. And that's where the most successful stories maybe come from. Um, so kind of turning into like gene therapy, where I guess that's been, you know, a long course of study and research for you. How did that, you know, how did you go from biology then to genetics, then to specifically focusing on gene therapy? Okay. So I, uh, um, I came out of my first degree at the University of York 
and actually, and, and still was then not sure what I wanted to do. I was quite interested in computers. So I did a degree in uh, biological computation. So this was back in 92 when computers really were not that fancy, uh, pre-internet days, really. Um, and so I, I was unsure. And I, I didn't really understand the sort of jobs that I could get. So literally, it was just a scattergun approach, looking at the back of the jobs that were advertised in New Scientist magazine. And I applied, uh, applied for, I don't know, um, 30, 40 jobs um, with little success. And then um, at the same time, I was uh, offered a job in Cumbria to do analysis of fern databases. And I was offered a job down in Gooch Street, down here in London, to do editing of journals. And I was also offered a position at St. Mary's Hospital Medical School, where, of course, Alexander Fleming was based, um, to do a research position in kidney disease. Uh, so actually, so that was the one that grabbed me, the one to do with research in kidney disease. Even then, I didn't really understand what it meant to do a PhD. Mm -hmm. So my, my uh, line manager, my supervisor, um, her name is uh, Vicky Cattell. She uh, was a, a histopathologist. And, and, the, and, and actually, she's one of my great inspirations because she taught me a huge amount of what I know about, about scientific method, about rigorous experimentation, about writing, about presenting. And so I was down at St. Mary's for quite a long while, actually, because it was a part-time PhD. I was down there from 93 to 99. And during that time, I uh, became friends with one of the departments um, uh, below in the same building that was the gene therapy department. So I became good buddies with these people. I used to um, go down the bar and hang out, hang out and play football with these, uh, these people. Uh, and it just happened that they had a job going uh, as I was finishing up at, uh, at, uh, with Vicky and St. Mary's uh, in gene therapy. So I'd, I'd kind of at that point been working, you know, doing stuff with them, do, you know, doing experiments with them, helping them out. So this is when I, I, I leapt into it, was in 1999. Um, and unfortunately at that point, gene therapy was just about to go into a little bit of a, of a crisis, probably mm. the biggest crisis in, in, in gene therapy. I was oblivious to this because I hadn't really experienced the, the high side of the, uh, of through the 90s. Mm -hmm. So I kind of, I, I arrived at a fairly low point where I think there's, I think maybe the bar was quite low yeah. at that point. And, uh, but what it did mean is that I was able to, to, to become established. Uh, so I, I then, uh, so it was the, the group of Professor Charles Cattell. And, and he actually, he gave me a lot of the leeway to be able to, to direct my, my, um, uh, interests and you know develop my research passion in in gene therapy so so this is a this is this is the this is the, the crucial part is there i think yeah that's that's i love that i love how go with the flow it was and kind of maybe yeah unplanned you just kind of yeah if, if i'd have if, if i'd have been a person applying to me now I would have said, I'm sorry, but you have no focus. You, you, <laughs> you don't know what you want to do. You clearly aren't interested in this. Mm. So I think this actually, I'd have, I'd have given myself a stern talking to. To think uh, about it. Yes, yeah, mm. yeah. Okay, interesting. So 
Thinking a little bit about gene therapy and maybe trying to explain it to everyone listening, um, if you were, I mean, we've talked a little bit about the fact that it's just really actually such a broad topic. I mean, when you think about it, it seems like a little niche, which of course it is in genetics. Um, I think that's, you know, obviously the great thing about genetics is there are so many incredibly cool niches um, to study and they're all very kind of complex in their own way, but also they have just, it's so broad. So in gene therapy, if you were going to explain that, how would you kind of go about that? So I, I think the first thing that it's important to note is that gene therapy spans a lot of different um, disciplines to treat a wide range of diseases. So gene therapy encompasses a, a, a huge range of different tools uh, that are there to manipulate genetic material of cells, DNA and RNA. Mm-hmm. So at, at the end of the spectrum, furthest away from the work that I do, are uh, things such as oncolytic virotherapy. So here you're taking uh, a virus, disabling it, and then using this to deliver genes that will kill tumour cells. So when these, when these oncolytic viruses are injected into a tumour, mm-hmm. they will deliver their toxic payload, and also not only will they kill the cells, but they'll also induce an immune response against the tumour. That's at the very far end away from what I do because what I'm, I, me and my team and collaborators work on is developing gene therapies for inherited genetic diseases. So these are patients that have got a, a defective uh, gene. For example, um, uh, it might cause cystic fibrosis, muscular dystrophy, hemophilia. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we are then attempting to do is to stealthily deliver working copies of the gene into the cell without inducing an immune response mm-hmm. um, and to deliver efficiently, hopefully so that a single delivery can last for the lifetime of the individual. That's the aspiration. Mm. So then if we just talk about, about why would you do gene therapy for a, a rare disease rather than um, any other treatment. So let's take haemophilia. It's a great example is this. So haemophiliacs... They, uh, it, before around 1985, the way to treat haemophilia is that they would receive uh, concentrated plasma from, um, uh, in, from non-affected individuals. And this plasma would contain the coagulation factors that they're missing. So it meant that they had to inject themselves or be, be injected with large volumes of this plasma, mm-hmm. even though it was concentrated. Uh, and unfortunately, um, the haemophilia community was beset by the fact that these uh, the blood was contaminated with hepatitis and HIV. After about 1985, um, there was the advent of recombinant um, uh, protein production. So therefore, growing proteins in vats, mm-hmm. bioreactors. And so it was possible, for example, to, to grow one of these clotting factors in a bioreactor, make it highly concentrated, and then the haemophiliacs could inject themselves with that. And this was quite transformative to the gene therapy community. Uh, it meant that they would have to inject themselves two or three times a week for their whole life. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and when they inject themselves with the protein, the protein would, would go into the circulation. Unfortunately, it would only stick around for a half-life of about 18 hours and then it would go away. Mm-hmm. So what it means is that 
um, they essentially had peaks and troughs of, 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 of therapy for their haemophilia. So haemophiliacs, they bleed. One of the main problems is that haemophiliacs, they bleed into their joints. Mm. And so they ultimately develop a, a serious arthritis. Mm -hmm. So even though they were receiving this amazing therapy, um, because it was repeated injections, um, uh, it, it didn't cure them and they could still develop the joint bleeds. Mm -hmm. Moreover, it was incredibly expensive, about £100,000 per patient per year. And, of course, the burden of them having to inject themselves mm -hmm. with these clotting factors. Now, over the past um, a couple of years, have been the licensed, market-approved gene therapies for haemophilias A and B. This is certainly for haemophilia B. This is a, a single injection that, as yet, is, is lasting the patient for 10 years. Uh, so although we rarely want to talk about a cure in gene therapy, um, it means that they have not had to inject, some of these patients have not had to inject themselves mm -hmm. with any factor for 10 years mm -hmm. uh, and 10 years and going. So this is the transformation, is that rather than having to take a drug or a medicine every day, every other day, in theory with a gene therapy, it's one shot and you're done. Wow, that's amazing. And so, okay, so one thing that kind of became clear to us in my, you know, in my background is in genetics. I did my undergrad in that. And one thing that people were talking a lot about towards the end of it um, is about like the variability in genomic sequences. Yes between, you know, different sexes, between different, you know, ethnicities, people from different areas of the world. In the context of gene therapy, I'm assuming that there is like maybe a reference genome that you would use or sort of use during your developments of a therapy. Like how does that all work? Yeah. So, I mean, certainly gene therapy has, has been progressing through the low hanging fruit of diseases. Yeah where these are, in theory, diseases that should be easily treated by delivering a working copy of the gene. Right. So, so there hasn't been a huge amount of attention paid to uh, the nuances of the sequences. And so, so the way we've tended to do it is that we just go to the reference, a reference database yeah. online, get a, a sequence from, an un from the unaffected reference genome, mm -hmm. and then use this, uh, uh, insert it into the vector, and then uh, delivering it into the cells, into the mouse models, or into then ultimately the patients. Mm -hmm. it, it clearly isn't quite as simple as that because uh, we make different versions of the gene in, in, in different cells in our body. Uh, and if, indeed, as you say, is that different individuals will express slightly different versions of the gene. Some will work better, some will work less well. Mm -hmm. And so I think that there's now, you know, there is some work going on to try to choose the best possible uh, version of the gene. Mm -hmm. But it, it's still, gene therapies are really, you know, it's quite a blunt tool. Mm -hmm. All you're doing is there's, there's the, the gene is not working, so therefore you're putting in extra copies, hoping that they will supplement. Um, or now there is a move to treat diseases which are dominant. Mm -hmm. So therefore, you have to knock down a gene as well as maybe knock in a gene. So things are getting tougher. But thankfully, the technology is, is, has improved so much now that we're able to consider these nuances and, and, uh, and 
have more complex solutions than mm-hmm. we ever ever really dared that we might be able to 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 think about yeah that's interesting so you i just caught what you said earlier is that in the community of gene therapy there's like a resistance around saying a cure for something i feel like i have an idea of why that is but maybe you could elaborate um so for example one of one of the most stunning examples of of gene therapy clinical success i think it was with spinal muscular atrophy type 1 spinal muscular atrophy these infants uh, untreated by the age of 2 they would be uh, it's a neurological neuromuscular disease so by the age of 2 they would uh, have nasogastric tubes they would be under um, a, a positive respiration because they don't have the muscle strength to be able to breathe or swallow uh, and um, without those um, 90% of them will not live beyond their second birthday so there was a gene therapy developed to deliver the, the survival motor neuron protein gene mm-hmm. to these infants so it's a single injection um, uh, as early as possible because it is more effective the earlier that you go and, and these infants are now um, running around at five years of age mm-hmm. walking talking some of them are difficult to distinguish from um, unaffected children but they aren't completely cured they still show some aspects of the disease they do have some evidence of neurological deficits mm-hmm. um, moreover it's really early because you know these are these are, this is the first cohort of patients that have ever been injected mm-hmm. en masse with these gene therapy vectors so we might find out that in 10 years' time, mm-hmm. there's an aspect of the disease that we didn't appreciate. Right. The reason that we didn't appreciate it is because no kids ever live until the age of 10 with type 1 spinal muscular atrophy. So we're starting to, by treating some aspects of the disease, we might be starting to uncover other aspects that we never truly understood or are aware of. Interesting. So it's kind of an ongoing process you're kind of we're all just still figuring it out i think is the biggest thing about science is that you know they're the we're trying our best but it's a constant learning process for everyone involved there's never a point when we go yeah yeah we understand (laughs) okay we're done yeah otherwise yeah we just go home no it's not gonna ever happen (laughs) true um okay so in the field of gene therapy, I mean, maybe separate from a dinner party with your parents and your brother, because these people sound like the kinds that would completely understand everything that you have to say, but maybe people that you're at a dinner party with, your friends that aren't so familiar with the fields of science. Um, do you find that there are common questions that people have, or maybe even like misconceptions, you know? What's something that people are constantly flocking towards you about with gene therapy and you're like, oh, is, I wish that I could address this or this is so kind of misunderstood. Are there areas of the field where you're like, I wish that you know people might just see it from this perspective instead? Okay. There are a, a lot of questions that, um, that people ask. One of the, one of the things that people... I think struggle to get their head around is that 
it is in theory just one injection mm-hmm. and then you're done and, and and the question then is will it really last forever we don't know that mm-hmm. but the principle of it is that you should have one injection that you're done the the one of the other i think one of the other questions is around the fact that the most effective gene therapies use vectors that have been derived from human viruses. Mm-hmm. So um, one of the vectors is based upon HIV. Another vector is based upon adenovirus. Mm-hmm. Another vector is based on what's called AAV. And so you know, people are, are thinking, well, you're injecting people with viruses here. Surely this is a bad thing. But we're not because the, the technology is such that you've stripped out all of, the, all of the virus genetic material and are just putting in the genetic material that you want to deliver. So uh, a gene therapy vector mm-hmm. is, um, is about as similar to a virus as uh, someone wearing a leather jacket is to a cow. Um, it's the it's the in the contents are entirely different, so I think you know I, th- I think that's one of the things that needs disambiguating. I think. Mm. Yeah, I think that's important, and I think particularly in the reason I ask is just because I think particularly in the field of genetics and also you know the idea of a therapy so an injection. Um, I think with COVID, people became a lot more kind of aware and wanted to educate themselves on these kinds of topics but there's also just so much misinformation out there and a lot of different kind of um theories about what certain things could be and i think it's important to kind of address them um and talk about them and you know open that conversation up a little bit as to what the reality is it's it's funny actually because so you know, there, there are, I think there were, there were two major genetic vaccines. There, was the, there were the RNA vaccines, mm-hmm. um, and then there was the adenovirus vaccines. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for, the, for those of us who have worked in adenovirus gene therapy at one point or another, we've always had to, to, to be very diligent about filling out safety forms in case we ever inject ourselves with an adenovirus. Uh, and, and we are in the field, aware that if you inject yourself with adenovirus, you aren't going to come to much harm. Mm-hmm. But there were always reams of forms. And, and it was always kind of with a, a wry smile that we then realised when the adenovirus vaccine for coronavirus was rolled out. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, you were getting hundreds of millions of people injected in the arm with an adenovirus that we would otherwise have had to fill our safety form for. Um, you know, and, and, you know, and... I think that the the coronavirus vaccines are are an interesting example because for some of the adenovirus vaccines, mm-hmm. um, they clearly caused some side effects. Um, so they cl- they caused um, a, a microthrombosis. So I think that you know it's it's an important consideration that all treatments it's a risk benefit analysis. There are going to be some risks, mm-hmm. um, and of course, there are going to be some tremendous benefits. It's the same with it's. A, it's not. This isn't just gene therapy. We're talking here about, you know, paracetamol. I mean, paracetamol actually is one of the most dangerous drugs. 
there were, you know, there were a lot of hospitalizations for people taking paracetamol. It, it, the side effects are quite serious. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I think that it's, it's important to remember in medicine that, that, that there isn't, there's rarely ever a, a truly, completely and utterly benign mm-hmm. medicine. Mm-hmm. It's going to have some side effects in some people. Uh, and so, so we have to always balance this risk-benefit analysis yeah. when we're looking at, at developing these treatments. I mean, for the kids with type 1 spinal muscular atrophy, they're not going to see their the third or fourth birthday. So, so therefore, you know, injecting them with something, you know, huge amounts of, of, of gene therapy vector, um, you know, in, te- in 10, 20 years' time, um, this might cause problems. But at least they're going to be able to see their teenage years, for example. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Um, thinking a little bit um, about like sort of the communication of this topic, like gene therapy, I think, you know, you mentioned to me before you've done different, you know, conferences and, and bits with certain um, like panels or whatever that you, where you've educated all on the topic of gene therapy. But you kind of mentioned that sometimes. And of course, you know, like, as we said, it's it's a broad topic, but thinking about like communicating on this, do you think it's important to talk about gene therapy in a more kind of casual way? Like, do you think it would be helpful or, or beneficial to that, this field that if people knew more about it? Absolutely. So, so the, so, so I I was involved fairly, fairly early on in the activities of the British society, um, uh, for gene therapy. Mm -hmm. And, um, and one of the mainstays of the an activity of the society was to try to educate the lay public and schools to try to explain what gene therapy was, what cell therapy was as well, eventually, um, and to try to demystify it mm-hmm. and also tr- to try to place it in, in, in the context of, of reality. So... Therefore, since 2006, there have been uh, an annual public engagement day with every BSGT meeting. Mm-hmm. So absolutely, I mean, the, the field is, 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 is very... I mean, the field was very aware because in the early 2000s, gene therapy was going through a rough patch uh, and people thought that it was finished and people didn't realise that actually it was just on the cusp of, of, of delivering. Mm-hmm. So... So I think it's it's really important to be able to communicate this, and I think the BSGCT does it really well. Mm-hmm. And I think the European Society now does it really well, mm-hmm. and I think the American Society of Gene and Cell Therapy does it really well as well. Mm. Well, that's good. Yeah, that's great. I I definitely think that it's gotten a lot better, and I think that you know, obviously with COVID, there was and a ton of you know really awful and harmful things, yeah. but there yeah. were also a lot of helpful things in terms of like you know evolving the community in terms of science communication and that kind of um the gaps that existed there but i think speaking of gaps do you find in the research community and the clinical applications of gene therapy i think it you know especially with patient involvement do you find that there are gaps that exist between kind of like what you're doing in the lab versus what is being practiced or I just I feel like there's so much of the time in different fields like a discrepancy between like the current guidelines around clinical practice and what patients know versus like what researchers are doing and what their passions are. Do you but, find in gene therapy there's common things that exist? So I think that the, in, in gene therapy, it's, 
it's very much been focused towards clinical translation. Mm-hmm. And I've noticed that, you know, when people have asked me, how do you choose a disease or a project? Qu- quite often, the drivers for this are clinicians that have patients who they are frustrated not to be able to treat mm-hmm. and therefore want to develop treatments for them, genetic treatments for them. Mm-hmm. Or sometimes you have patient organisations where they've pulled themselves together and, and essentially they are calling on the researchers to mm-hmm. say, can you, can you concentrate on, on this area? Mm-hmm. So we kind of, we're almost, you know, we've, in, in many cases we've been quite often led by um, individuals who have, who have got, got, got it and, and that can be both the clinicians and the patients. Mm-hmm. I think that's nice. I think that that's, I feel like that's how it should work. It would be good if that could work more often in, in the different areas of science too, because I feel like that would close gaps. Yeah. I mean, the, I think my, actually, my, my, my criticism, my slight criticism of gene therapy is a little bit the opposite in that, um, is that quite often some of the basic science is being... Um, kind of almost papered over, kind of, you know, there's a huge amount that we don't know. Mm-hmm. And we, I think we would really benefit. From we would really improve these, you know, these gene therapy vectors by understanding more of the basic science. But, but it, it, gene therapy is very much driv- driven by translation and, and, you know, and looking at clinical benefit as well. Which I think is important, you know, in genetics, you know, given the, the, the past... And history in the field, I think it's probably also one of the reasons that it's so driven by clinical kind of needs. Um, Okay, well, that's, you know, you mentioned that kind of just thinking, you know, going forwards in your in your future and your career with gene therapy, kind of what are you hoping? Do you have goals that or not specific to you, but just for the field in general that you hope that you'll see? Like, what are your main? Obviously, you have, you know, your interests, but. I think that one of the one of the problems that's facing gene therapy at the moment is that uh, the reality is that gene therapies are costing a lot of money, mm-hmm. and this is causing problems for for um, the healthcare systems, for the insurers, um, and. This not only is causing a problem, but also it's a perception problem as well. Mm-hmm. So therefore, for example, I think it's like it, the, the haemophilia gene therapy is something like three million for one shot, mm-hmm. which is which seems an incredibly incredible amount. Mm-hmm. But when you think that it could be a single shot, and then you never have to give that patient uh, the protein therapy anymore, and it means that they never have to go into hospital, they're never going to develop the joint bleeds. If you're looking at the at the outcome of this. I'm not saying that three million is a is a is a good figure, mm-hmm. but certainly uh, you have to take all of that into into consideration. Yeah. So I think I think, but of course, this means that that some countries will never be able to afford these gene therapies. So I think that ultimately the, the prices of these is, is going to come down a lot. What I think has happened is that so gene therapy has has now made fantastic inroads into some genetic diseases, and and I'll I'll bunch. CAR T cell therapy for treating blood cancers in with this too, 
there's been some fantastic progress made treating blood cancers that are refractory to any other treatment. Um, but these aren't the common diseases. I think what is happening now is that um, it's, it's almost like we've now got over the foothills. People have become a bit more comfortable with the idea of genetic therapy. And what we will then see is the application of genetic therapies to a whole bunch of more common conditions. You know, whether they be asthma, right. uh, eczema, um, pulmonary fibrosis, yeah. li liver disease, what have you. But I think that, that now the, we've got a, a huge number more tools for gene, for gene therapy. And I think now we have the confidence to start, start to look at treating some of the more common conditions as well. Yeah, well, that would be good. I'm, I, this has been so great, this conversation. I feel like I've learned so much, and I'm sure everyone listening feels the same way. Um, I'm really looking forward to seeing kind of everything that you're going to do and, um, and how the field evolves. Um, but thank you so much. Thank you very much.